Firstly, I'd like to thank everyone who has donated to the GoFundMe page. Dan Lynch, Rory Blaney, Dennis Coulson, Michael Flatley, Alpha Fitzgerald, Adrian, Earl ZTT, and last but not least, Banterface Duff Spee. Today I'm joined by Shane Moss, who is an American comedian who won Best Stand-Up Comic Award at HBO's Comedy Arts Festival in 2007, which led to Shane being invited to perform several times on The Late Night with Conan O'Brien. Shane also hosts the podcast called Here We Are, in which he interviews scientists and academics from across the country. Uh, So to begin, thanks a lot for coming on, Shane. And the first question I want to ask you is about your upbringing. What are some of the memories that stand out of your childhood? Boy, I I mean, I had a, I had like a very uh, wholesome kind of boring childhood and, uh, and I don't know why, but I was kind of like miserable the whole time. I was always in detention. I was always a rebel and I was always kind of pushing the boundaries. And so I was always in trouble for something. I was never a good student and I was always like grounded and in detention. And so that's my memories of my childhood. It was just being in trouble and <laughs> um, being a part of the breakfast club on weekends. Yeah, yeah. M- most all of the time. And um, and yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm from uh, I'm from Wisconsin, and we'd do some outdoorsy things and stuff like that here and there. Um, but I wasn't as big into like hunting and fishing as most people were. So, um, I don't know. I wasn't into much of anything. I, I mostly (laughs) lived in my imagination, um, and still do for the most part, um, Mm. most of my life. So, uh, so yeah, my memory was that I had, I had good parents and, uh, I don't know what went wrong, but, uh, but... But uh, I I turned out a bit of a misfit, and and you didn't exactly get into comedy until your early twenties. Did you go down to the traditional route of college and doing jobs, or what was the delay that kind of caused you not to get into the comedy well, I, lifestyle? Open to- I, I was scared. I didn't. It seemed like an unrealistic career to pursue. And so I got a factory job and I worked in factories for a while. Um, and, and, uh, then I finally gave up on that and, um, moved to Boston. And when I was 23 years old, I, I did five years of like hard factory work out of high school and then decided that, uh, there was, there was no harm in giving comedy a shot. So were you pretty much more or less just zero job satisfaction in that kind of legend to comedy, or was it something? Oh yeah, was yeah. I I hated. Uh, I mean, yeah, factory work was real brutal, and uh, <laughs> and so I had I had no other I had no other backup plan. I always wanted to be a comedian since I was 
a little kid. And so uh, I never formed a backup plan. It's which is still I'm 37 now. And um, and that's still terrifying that I don't have any kind <laughs> of education or any kind of backup. I'm not even sure I could get a factory job anymore. Like I won't even know how to go about it. I have no I just have to get some entry level job, I guess. I don't know what I'm going to do when, when comedy uh, ultimately fails because no one's leaving their house anymore, um, which <laughs> is what's happening. Um, so I guess I'll just have to create more content when we're all glued to our TVs and computers. Um, I'll just have to have my face popping up on there more. And what, what was it like? So once you step into the comedy world, uh, it wasn't too long that, as I mentioned in the introduction that you won best stand-up comic at the hbo comedy arts fest from 2007 like how big of a turning point was that for you in your life in relation to actually believing in your comedy a bit more than maybe perhaps you did before you got the award um it was huge i mean i was i was broke i was worried that i was going to be homeless and um i i won this award over all of these amazing comedians that had been doing stand-up for much longer than me and uh most all of them are doing much better than i'm now as well like tj miller was there and kyle canane and all these all these amazing uh john mulaney um all these all these comics that are doing really well for themselves uh now and um yeah it's i i uh it was it was enormous for me. I was able to go full time as a as a headliner and um, and tour around, and that's what I've been doing ever since. Great. And did that did that lead to some of the TV guest appearances, like for instance Conan O'Brien? Did that award spark the interest in in you? Was that just purely down to the award? Yeah. Yeah, I won that award and uh and I got ag- an agent and a manager from that and then and the Conan people had seen me there and so I was just really off and running after that and then I I got to be on uh I I got to do some Comedy Central stuff and it was uh, everything was kind of fast tracked after that. Sweet. And what just last thing on the Conan appearances, uh, what was it like to as you were saying, go suddenly into full-time comedy stand-up and then also be performing on one of the biggest shows on in TV in the U.S.? Was it nerve-wracking? Um, the first one, like, everything just started falling into place for me. So I was just like, I guess uh, this is just how my life is going to be now. Yeah. I'm just going to be this... Uh, this um, famous stand-up comedian, and which I, later on my in my career plateaued, and there's been ups and downs mm. uh, um, ever since. But uh, but at the time, it was really it was uh, skyrocketing as fast as anyone's career could be skyrocketing. Only three years into the business, and and so it was pretty uh, it was it was pretty exciting. Mm. And in just in relation to comedy, like I'm Irish, I'm used to a good few Irish comedians, the UK comedians from England and Britain. I'm just wondering, do comedians have to pick their style of comedy? As some comedians love being controversial, while others love to tell funny stories and use their kind of actions to create laughter. 
and it just shows that there's so many different ways to approach comedy. But a bit like music, do you think comedians try to adapt their comedy to suit the kind of the mainstream audience? Maybe. Um, I mean, I think everyone's a little bit different. Mm. And I think it changes over a career as well. At least mine has. I've gone from when I started, I was kind of a short joke, um, like absurdist kind of a comedian. And I was a little more toward the edgier or dirtier side. Um, I, I, uh, I, uh, loved telling jokes about like anal beads and stuff <laughs> like that and uh and then and then i loved you know uh, speaking about taboo topics like uh, religion or abortion or mm. whatever making murder jokes or whatever and all of that sort of started getting old to me um after after a few years, probably when I was five or six years in, um, I just wanted to develop more as a comedian. I started doing more storytelling stuff. Probably when I started, when I caught a bunch of breaks and started performing and headlining on the road, I started telling a few more stories here and there. I wouldn't say that I was a storyteller at the time, but I had some good stories in my act. And then, um, and then, uh, I eventually started doing kind of themed shows too and doing putting a little bit more information into my act and now I do some themed shows with some information in them and then I also do these um, these other um, kind of I, I, I do storytelling my regular kind of club act around America is, is just telling stories and so so when when people see my sets on Conan or whatever, that's that's actually nothing like what my style is nowadays. So so it changes. Uh, I just keep on trying to push myself to get out of my comfort zone and and try as many different things as possible. Sweet. Like one of the clips I've seen of you is the Bigfoot story when you're doing the stand up oh, about, yeah. about finding Bigfoot, and it was actually on like two days ago. And you're saying how it's always the case of, you know, they never actually find Bigfoot. They actually always yeah. end up just coming face to face with the people they're trying to, you know, work with to find Bigfoot. Right. Like, is that, are you referencing that as your kind of Conan O'Brien error? Or is that actually more up to date? That's a little closer to today's uh, of doing like longer form stuff because that's like a five or five to seven minute bit on the same um, topic. Um, that's, that's a little bit, uh, and, and I've been, I've also, as I've, as I've been introducing a little more science into my act at the same time, I've kind of been, um, critical about the, the stupid stuff that we all find ourselves consuming. So mm. that's kind of where that came out of. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I would say that's a little more, I still, I still do that, um, do that bit once in a while so i guess that's a little more modern shane and what's what in your opinion anyway as you're saying you have to kind of ad adapt your your content as you get older and get more experienced but over say the last five eight years what has been the toughest part of being a comedian in your eyes whether it's been on stage or off stage and um, 
in your view? I mean, just kind of keeping bookings coming in and, and staying relevant. And the game changes, too. I mean, I used to... There used to be, like, morning radio shows that I would get on that were really popular, that would get me a lot of road work. And then... Um, morning radio went away and podcast became the big thing and um i over the last several years have have been um getting a lot of attention just as a podcast guest on mm. things like um pete holmes you made it weird or jogan or duncan trussell's family hour podcast and yeah so that that's changed dramatically um, and, and so who knows how it's going to change next? Um, I mean, there's people now doing, there's like virtual reality stand-up shows where you can be at home and put on your VR and a stand-up is in a, a virtual reality studio, um, being filmed and doing their stand-up to, you sitting at home watching it and like they hear the laughter and then there's like your like emoji people can put like different emojis and stuff like that as a response to your jokes um (laughs) have you heard of this no that's the first time i've heard of it has any uh big names got involved in it uh i don't know i don't know much about it i just know it's a thing Mm. that exists and and it's just a good example of uh, how quick the world is changing. I, I mean, it's it's tough to say where stand-up comedy is going to, because there there seems like there's waves. It's a pretty cheap thing to make for for television people, so they can so they can make yeah. specials pretty compared compared to having to have a writing staff and pay actors and do all of this other and and you know all, all this intricate uh, set and costume design and everything else that like one single episode of a TV show takes all of the stuff that goes into a single TV show you can just instead have one comic that wrote the entire act has already tested it out in front of audiences and uh, you just need to rent the space and. Uh, and film it and and the editing of it is really easy there's not much in the way of editing and and uh i mean it's it's simple so so there's been these waves of all of a sudden there will be like a ton of of specials that come out that are out on um like this company CISO popped up for a for a minute and they are putting specials out everywhere or Netflix will go in streaks of putting out a bunch of specials and then and then it will be like too many and people will kind of lose interest because the quality isn't good enough and then they'll rail it in and only have like the biggest specials on and and uh it kind of goes it kind of goes back and forth and then and then the live performance changes quite a bit too there's the now there's the kind of indie scene in comedy which like I did a 111 city tour recently that I mostly put together myself and I was mostly doing music clubs and things like that I I wasn't doing that many comedy clubs on it and it was the most successful tour of my entire career um and and 
that's something that's new. That that's something that was kind of when I started in um, '04 or whatever. That was something that was very very new at the time. I mean, everyone was doing their own open mics and whatnot, and sometimes at music venues, but yeah. there wasn't the same kind of like like nowadays. Um, there's tons of comics that are doing their own little tours and doing like music venues and and kind of leaving the comedy clubs a little bit. Um, and so, and then comedy clubs are being affected by that. And, um, and so it's, it's tough to say how things will go. And when you're traveling, as you're saying, you did over a hundred shows there across the country. I was talking about adaption early on. Do you have to take into account what state you're in or what their maybe political beliefs of that, population would be while you're doing your show would you do the same thing religiously every single night and if they like it they like it and if they don't you know screw them uh i i used to i used to be like well whatever this is what i do and if you don't like it screw you um now Mm. now i adapt to my act um it's also there's a lot more pressure once you're making all of your living on the road um and you want to be invited back to clubs and have good relationships with these clubs and everything else and uh and so you can only walk so many people before uh before you stop being invited back and Mm. so i i alter it quite a bit i mean there's there's things that you wouldn't really think of like like even dark humor just doesn't work as well in certain areas no, it, like it, it's one thing to be, um, to be like, well, you can't use a Jesus joke uh, in the Bible Belt. It might be harder yeah. to get away with. That's that's pretty much you know anyone could guess that. But um, something like a suicide joke is going to go over much better in like a um, indie area on the coast than it is. Yeah. Uh, working on the road and I have uh, like I ha- I'm I'm bipolar and I just started doing material about uh, being manic depressive and mm. um, and that's something that you know talking talking about mental illness when I go to um, you know like I was at a club in San Antonio and trying out some of this uh, like I've I live in Portland, Oregon, and I had tried out yeah. a bunch of it in Portland and in L.A., and it was working really well. Um, and then, and then I went to tried it in a club in San Antonio, and it really tanked. Um, and I think I think mental illness is just something that doesn't really come up as much and isn't uh, isn't dealt with very openly in those kinds of areas. And um, yeah. and so people were just kind of looking at me like I was a crazy person. Um, <laughs> and which is fair enough. I am, but not, uh, <laughs> not in the way that you didn't want them to look. Yeah. In that yeah. way. And, and so, so yeah, I, I have to adapt to my act. I, all the, and then when I do international shows, there's, there's little things that I have to change here and there, little references and stuff that just don't work as well. Like, well, uh, well, I definitely. Do you want? Or do you give an example? I, I mean, just just yeah. tiny stuff. Like I was just in Australia, and I have a, I have a joke about um, uh, cocaine, um, and 
uh, one of one of the references that I use in it is about uh, um, cocaine users driving Camaros, um, and it gets a laugh in the U.S. But in Australia, they just didn't. I mean, that's not that's not a, a easy to put together reference, I guess, or um, yeah. you know, no one, no one, no one lived the the early 90s coke days and when Camaros were all the rage and everyone was doing cocaine. Yeah. So, so that's just a, you know, just like little references like that, that's not, it wasn't like completely lost on people or anything else. It just like didn't do very well there. And so there's all these just like little tiny changes like that that you have to make. To explain to the listeners, you had... You had a major accident uh, several years ago <laughs> yeah. while, you're, while you were hiding. Yeah. And just new listeners who have no idea, can you just explain to them yeah, I mean, what it, took place? I, I guess it was an accident. I mean, I purposefully jumped <laughs> yeah. off something that was much too high. I mean, the accident was that I thought that I was going to be able to make this jump just fine. Um Actually, I was a little bit nervous about it. I was pushing my limits a little bit. But I wouldn't have jumped had I known what was going to happen, which was that I ended up yeah. breaking both of my heels and one of them kind of exploded and needed to crawl down a mountain for a few hours. And then I, I needed a couple surgeries on my on my one foot and was laid up for a while. And um, But the reason why people know about it is because I... I made a, I created a whole act about it um, called My Big Break, uh, and it was my third, yeah. my third comedy album. Hopefully, I'll have another one out soon. I'm waiting to hear back on a few things. But um, what, here, here's what was interesting. So, so I, um, with I have uh, my science podcast. Here we are, and one of the things that I'm mm really obsessed with and at the time was more obsessed with was this idea of this kind of negativity bias uh, that we all have and how we've evolved to kind of perceive negative emotions more and put more emphasis on negative emotions and and not as much emphasis on the positive things and um and so i had already i had written a whole act about this and how you know, pain is this, no one, no one likes pain, but it's kind of this necessary thing that keeps us out of trouble and same with fear and uh, things like that. And so I, I had already written this whole act about the evolved function of negative emotions. And then I broke both of my feet and, uh, and then, and so it happened to just really work like my my act before that it was working well but it wasn't personal it was just very informational and people respond better to really personal material and and so um i uh i i, I break my feet and then I, I and then i had just the perfect um place for it. so so people thought my whole act was about breaking my feet, and that's kind of how I build it. But I had already written the whole act before it happened, and it was just like it was one of those one of those kind of um, unfortunate but f- 
unfortunate coincidences. If something bad like that has to happen, <laughs> it was good timing for it. I actually had another thing like that happen uh, recently where... So my last my last act that I've been touring with um, has been about psychedelics. Um, I've been using my okay. uh, magic mushrooms in particular for 21 years or so. Um, maybe a little longer than that now. And and so I I put together this act about mostly about mushrooms and LSD and and DMT for a lot of people don't know what DMT is, but it's the world's powerful um, psychedelic. And uh and I had written this this um act about kind of uh how it really got got into perception and um and consciousness and some of the history of the drug laws and how prohibition has failed and that sort of thing and and that's what i ended up doing this 111 city tour with um and that's why i wasn't doing a lot of mainstream comedy clubs with it i was doing more kind of underground stuff because of the um subject matter talking about your drugs and uh and so it was this really successful thing. And then um, I had someone reach out to me who wanted to make a documentary with me about psychedelics. And so we started shooting this documentary. Okay. And, um, and to prove that psychedelics are safer than people think they are, I did a lot of psychedelics um, in a very short amount of time. And then... Uh, and then quite predictably right, ended up in a psych ward while trying to prove <laughs> how safe psychedelics are. And, yeah. and, uh, it was, it was like a really scary and awful experience, um, for me personally, but the timing of it couldn't have been better yeah. uh, because it sure, it sure made the documentary a lot more interesting and yeah, right place, right time. Yeah. So, so I've I've been uh, I I've had like a lot of a lot of interesting luck I would say yeah. it's hard to say good or bad it's just like really weird interesting luck mm. on the the use of medication or psychedelics whatever way you want to phrase this recovery time for your injury it lasted well I'm just judging this off interviews and podcasts I've listened to it lasted for years and I don't even know like do you still suffer from it feel the pain oh no today. i just complained i just complained <laughs> about it for years uh, I, I was i was on i just milked it for all i could um i i was uh i was on crutches for about a year and then i was on a cane for about six months after that and then uh and then another six months of of uh it, it not being able to walk very well so i guess it was like two years that that it really affected my life and it still does a little bit but now now it's more or less just uh just like i have a i have a left foot of of like my left foot is like 70 years old it's that's what happens when you have a leave it to beaver upbringing and you and you're a straight yeah. white guy who hasn't faced a lot of adversity in his life and people just mm -hmm. love hearing about adversity so you have one bad injury and then you just milk it for a few years when you were recovering for that year or two, mentally I could imagine it was hugely frustrating and there was probably dark moments, but how important was the use of either 
prescribed medication or even medicine medicine that wasn't prescribed how important was that for you to actually get through the whole ordeal of not being able to walk being in hospital getting out of hospital going back in how important was the for the mental side of your health to use medication or psychedelics well psychedelics really helped a lot i mean I mean, the the pain meds were necessary for a while, but those things uh, those things can be highly addictive as well. Mm. Um, uh, so psychedelics are nice because they're not really addictive in any way. Um, although, um, I, I I mean, I I've came close to feeling like I'm addicted to um, psychedelics just because. Mm things seem pretty boring after you have enough, uh, psychedelic trips, but, um, but psychedelics were really good for me at the time. I think they're just, um, they're, they're a good way of resetting the system. And so when you are going through a period of, of, uh, chronic depression, for example, I mean, mushrooms are, that's, that's one of the things that psilocybin mushrooms, that's one of the main things that they're being studied for right now is long-term depression. And they are quite effective as, as someone who's suffered from depression since I was probably about nine or 10 years old. um, uh, Mushrooms are the single uh, best thing that I've ever found to treat that. Um, unfortunately I can't really do them anymore because I landed myself in a psych ward by doing way too many psychedelics, yeah. but, um, but, uh, they, they were an incredibly positive influence on my life. And do you think, do you think the media plays a bad role in relation to, there's obviously huge press co- uh, coverage on the opiate epidemic in the U S and a lot of these scientific experiments being ca- carried out in certain psychedelics, as you mentioned, they kind of tend to be shot down more often than not. Yeah, well, think- I mean, I think that there's, I think there's just a lot of common misperceptions. With that. I mean, people think that all illegal drugs are the same. So most people, if I talk about mushrooms or LSD, that's in their brain. That's in the same category as meth or crack or opiates or something like that which is absolutely preposterous whereas psychedelics are something that kind of force you inwards and they're they're when done right meant as a meditative therapeutic aid that is that is not at all what (laughs) opiates or crack or meth are being used for and in fact psychedelics have a long history of breaking addiction and so i mean I mean, uh, there's there was a little a little bit along the way was very like kind of conspiratorial, um, but I'm careful not to get too much into that. It was it was just the the beginning of it was after prohibition failed in the U.S. Um, after the alcohol prohibition failed, um, they they had all of these people, uh, all of these government employees. Um, you know, they, they hired all of these people to, to do prohibition, which was this enormous job. And then, um, you know, it was kind of, these people were going to be out of work. And once you're, once you're getting that, it's like, it's like a certain district gets X amount of money for road construction each year. 
And mm. if you don't use it every year, they're not going to give it to you every year. And so even if the road needs fixing or not, you're still going to fix some roads because you want to keep that budget coming in. And that's sort of what happened with, with drugs. After Prohibition, they, um, they had all of these people kind of with nothing to do and that were going to lose their jobs. And so they targeted um, uh, opiates and, um, and marijuana, which was cannabis. They changed the name to marijuana to, to make it sound uh, Mexican to target Mexicans. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, and so back then there was, there was a lot of, uh, race issues involved and it was ways of targeting, uh, like opium was targeted to, um, uh, because, uh, to, to crack down on basically the Asians, um, coming over to, uh, to do work in the U S and so a lot of those, a lot of those laws spawn from, um, just pure racism and that continued for some time but um but mostly mostly it's not um as devious as that i think i think most of it is just um plain old ignorance of of i mean there's there's only there's there's only so much any of us can know about things in life and uh and you know the government does uh quite the job of of telling us that all of these illegal drugs are the same and they're really bad and you should stay away from them and and um you know people people buy into that and err to the side of caution and and so no one really questions it i don't i don't think there's like i i don't think any like lawmaker today really knows that much about uh how how much potential there is for something like MDMA to cure PTSD mm. or anything like that. Um, but, and I don't, I don't think that they're like sitting there plotting against this drug or that drug necessarily. Um, yeah. I just think it's, it's uh, plain old ignorance and we've kind of were born into the system that's already in place and it's, it just kind of keeps on going. So you do your own podcast, you previously mentioned it there a few minutes yeah. ago called Here We Are. And you talk to scientists, academics, and people with interesting views on life. And I actually listened to the episode with Thomas Denson on yeah. oh, aggression yeah. and anger. Now, yeah, now, I don't want people thinking I'm this lunatic who's pissed off the whole time. <laughs> so please don't judge. But I really enjoyed how Tom Thomas explained all the effective techniques on to how to draw anger yeah. out of people and how people actually re regulate their emotions. What I'd like to ask is, what made you pick science and in-depth discussions of the mind as the focus of your podcast when maybe other topics would be, I, d I don't want to say popular, but a bit more common with comedians? Well, I mean, it's just a natural interest of mine, and there's a lot of things that went into it. I mean, one, um, I have a lot of free time <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, uh, there's only so much TV one can watch. And I, I try to, I try to limit how much TV I watch. And so I try to read it, um, as much as I can, which still isn't nearly enough, but I don't, uh, I'm not into reading fiction that much. And so I, I, 
have always spent a lot of time reading nonfiction. And um, when I started touring internationally, um, international comedians put together these solo shows and do these festivals and whatnot. And, uh, and I, um, I just thought this will be my, um, my solo show, uh, is, will be science based. And then I can go and do all of these festivals and I'll get to travel internationally more. And so in the process of just trying to think of, um, what, what my solo stand-up show would be, or potentially a TV show would be, I started reaching out to various scientists who I had read and was interested in, and um, and was just blown away by some of the conversations that I was having, and so I was like, why not just record these conversations? And that's exactly what I did. And what are some of the most interesting, I don't want you to delve in, because you've done huge amount of episodes on here we are i'm just wondering what are some of the the standout moments for you where you kind of sat back and were like wow this is this is really mind blowing um, well uh if Ro- you can robert robert sapolsky is the stanford neuroscientist and was a primatologist um when he was younger too and he uh his his work is I think he is the greatest mind uh, living today, and I think his work is incredibly important. Not not just is it interesting, but it's important in terms of how we think about ourselves and how people to live less stressful lives and um, and basically behave uh, a little bit better toward one ourselves and one another. He he does a lot of work with stress. And understanding the stress systems and and how it how it affects people and how um, uh, all the way from um, how a given situation at work or or your hierarchy at work affects your affects your stress level um, to what your prenatal environment was like, what your mom's diet like in utero, and how that affects. Uh, your stress levels later on in life. And, and when I had him on, that was like my, my biggest get just because I was really, I was really nerding out. And that was, he, he was, he's like my hero. Um, but, uh, I really, I mean, the podcast was really founded on, um, evolutionary psychology and biology to start. And, just kind of learning to understand how our brains have adapted these psychological mechanisms to um, to help us uh, reproduce more and to help us um, gain friends and gain status and and how um, how our ancestral past really affects our modern world and the decisions that we make. And then kind of that leads into uh, another interest, which is kind of behavioral economics, which is why we spend money on the things that we spend it on. A lot of this stuff, the stuff that I'm really interested in is all life science things. So um, so my hope is, is that I'm finding people that 
can give these little bits of knowledge that that help people live better lives. So understanding, for example, that um, that um, active leisure, like I I just did some CrossFit today. Uh, I went rock climbing yesterday. Uh, I'm I'm going for uh, a couple hikes this weekend, and um, and a lot of times I don't feel necessarily motivated to do those things, but I know that um, just because of uh, I've had a number of guests pound this into my head over and over again that yeah. active leisure rather than passive leisure rather than sitting in front of the TV um, is is uh, something that sticks with you and makes your overall well-being increase. And so, um, think, things in that area. I, I mean, I've had I've had episodes about like zebra mussels and like and things like that <laughs> that don't really like nothing in that episode is necessarily going to affect your day-to-day life uh, or improve the quality of your life. It's just kind of interesting. And, um, mm. and who knew zebra mussels could be interesting. Um, but the episodes <laughs> that I really like are the ones that, um, that cover, I, I really like talking about topics like depression and anxiety and, uh, and ultimately happiness and what motivates us. Um, I, I really, I think mating behavior is endlessly, fascinating uh a lot of people um hear stuff about mating behavior and they're kind of like um bored with it or uh, i might even say snobbish about it where uh if you you talk about differences in gender for example and that's this really taboo thing to say that um to say that men and women might have uh different evolutionary histories and have evolved different biologically um but but when you see the research it's absolutely fascinating and explains so much about why we uh behave certain ways on dates and why they're why we uh favor certain things in the bedroom and we do different things to like pick up uh like what what it takes to say like um date somebody as opposed to be in a long-term relationship with someone and keep that relationship maintained and going or is is very much different than like what a uh hookup is and there's to know that there's like science behind that uh that can help you is uh endlessly fascinating to me it's it's interesting that you say about simulation and all these many different things i actually was just finished reading a book i don't know if you've read it called irresistible by an australian guy called adam alter it's all about our behavior how it's changed over the last few years to social media and technology and how in the space of the last seven eight years attention spans have gone from about 12 13 seconds down to eight how people only play well young people 
play like games on their phones. They play the games that upset them and put them in bad moods rather than the games that actually play them, <laughs> that actually make them happy. Really? And that, that's a fact. Yeah, he did a study with thousands of kids and oh. he was like, what do you feel like after this game? And they're like, I feel really sad and annoyed. And then there was only about 10, 15% of them that actually preferred the games that made them happy after playing. So it's, it's, it's mad. <laughs> it really is. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't... Uh, I, technology is one of those... It, it's just... Who knows? It, it, might, it might be the end of us, but it's also so exciting and there's so much potential and who knows if we're going to have a Terminator apocalypse or if we're all going to have peace on Earth with robots just... <laughs> making stuff for us for hardly any money and we're gonna have all our needs met with hardly having to work ever and uh live in some weird futurist utopia where we find all these uh new sources of energy and and (laughs) or we're all going to lose our jobs uh because we can't get off of facebook um and and we're all uh, i don't know i don't i don't know how it's gonna go um definitely uh i mean these uh, the the companies making all of these products aren't necessarily doing it as as like out of kindness of their hearts they they want to make money and sell ads and everything else. And to do that, they're using uh, a whole lot of tools that are, that are meant to um, engage our attention and, and keep our attention. And yeah, just manipulation. Uh, yeah, we, we are definitely much. being manipulated. Um, <laughs> like the, like Steve jobs didn't allow his children use the iPad and the, the inventor of Twitter doesn't allow his kids yeah, to use Twitter. That. And I think that points yeah. to it. Why, why invent something? Well, why invent it? Because you make a lot of money, but it just shows you all the flaws of the actual system when the people who create it don't actually want their family to use it. Yeah. Don't hear it. Yeah. Mad. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, I it's, 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 it it's is. too much. It is. It's way too much. I, I've been using, I've been off of social media more uh, this year, and I've been using the computer less, and I have been happier. But at the same time, um, you know, we still, it's still necessary. Uh, do you think, do you think social media, like especially, I know you've got Twitter, uh, you don't have Instagram, no, if I'm not no. mistaken, and then obviously you Facebook. How do you think it's? it's hugely important for your career in comedy and even with the podcast to maintain that social media platform and make sure that your fans and potential fans. Well, I guess I'll find out. Um, I haven't, I haven't been posting much in Twitter or Facebook recently and we'll see if it makes a difference to me. It seems like I was putting a lot of time into something that wasn't ultimately paying off all that much. Um, so why bother? Mm. Um, but uh, I also I also wouldn't have been able to the the 111 city tour that I did. Um, I did a lot of advertising on Facebook, and I was able to kind of target um, different 
pages of for like psychedelic enthusiasts and and I was able to get mm. my my ads for my show to the eyes of people that are into psychedelics and um and I wouldn't have had such a successful tour without it so um yeah it does it has its benefits and we're we're uh we're gonna put this out on social media we're recording this wonderful podcast <laughs> over the computer and two two very different locations in how the world sad. how sad and and so it's yeah. it's amazing um and i yeah. don't want to live without my smartphone i uh, it's awfully yeah. handy i don't i don't want to go back to what comedy was like before cell phones which um from what i'm told is you had to like pull over and use a payphone to get directions to line things up and and you know to have to even the ability to like make sure and get a call from from someone or you'd have to use a payphone to check in with your agent or manager um to to see when your gigs were coming in and uh and i mean there's just it it's it's not worth thinking about cell phones are amazing <laughs> they are and last thing for you anyway by the way we have to do a quick fire round it's a tradition on the podcast we do quick fire questions to finish up but last thing i'd like sure. to ask you before that is what are your plans for the rest of the year do you as you mentioned the documentary do you plan on going on another tour is there any tv appearances lined up i'm just curious to know well, good question. I have a lot of projects in the works. I'm touring a little bit. I am I am working on putting together a UK tour with my show A Good Trip about Will psychedelics. Will you come to Ireland or just the UK? I hope so. Yeah, this summer um, I want to. Ooh, um, and so working on that and then, um, and then uh, I have... I, I want to, the the show that I did, I want to have it made into a special, um, which I've been kind of in negotiations with that, and that's coming along slowly, but I think surely um, it's just a taboo topic and, and it's been yeah. a little bit harder of a sell than I thought it was going to be. Um, the documentary is finished and we're submitted to film festivals. So we'll see what we get accepted to and who knows what that's going to end up on. I just filmed a thing for a TV pitch for a show about psychedelics. Um, and then I'm working on, I'm potentially getting some, uh, development deal together for, uh, a show that's basically like a, a science and comedy uh, show and so that's what I'll be cool. working on um, coming up. But uh, but who knows? I I have no idea if it's any if it's going to, or uh, what what what's going to drop first and what's going to pay off um, ultimately. Or I I might be doing uh, some completely different projects in a few months. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, it's cool to have uh, options and things to look forward to. Absolutely move on to these quick fire questions sure i have to say first thing that pops into your head say it and don't regret it first one is netflix or youtube netflix 
Netflix is our new ruler, and it's uh, and it's 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 a, of all of the rulers throughout history. Uh, like, there's been a lot of rulers that like murder people and enslave people and stuff, and and Netflix is like enslaving us through entertaining content, and so it's like it's a it's a real step up if you're going to be. If you're going to be ruled by <laughs> by something, um, yeah. I say all hail Netflix. Um, what is worse, in your opinion, doing the laundry or doing the dishes? Whoo! Oh, um, laundry. I've never figured out how to fold clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a road comedian. I have to like yeah. pack suitcases all of the time, and I still don't know how to fold a shirt properly. Mm. Well, maybe that should be your your goal for the rest of 2018: perfect how to fold a shirt neatly into a bag. Yeah, a that's something that I might actually be able to accomplish in 2018. Your favorite film of all time? Uh, Dr. Angelov. Okay. Uh, your favorite comedian of all time? Mm, Doug Stanhope. Uh, this is actually a question from one of my friends. I told him if he donated to the podcast, he'd get to ask one. So he wants to know which place do you prefer, Los Angeles or New York? Los Angeles. Weather's so much better. Way more laid back. Your favorite Simpsons character? Homer. Good choice. Like, I, I can't argue with that. <laughs> um, hiking or CrossFit? Um, hiking. Smoking or non-smoking? Non-smoking. I smoked for like 20 <laughs> years. Oh, smoking is the worst. I hated it. Uh, and it was like impossible to quit. I finally quit. Well, this is the second time. Congratulations. So we'll see if it actually sticks this time. But, uh, yeah, I hate cigarettes. And last question, and this is the toughest one. Uh, describe yourself in three words. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, laid back comedian. Fantastic. Okay, well, that wraps it all up, Shane. I want to thank you for coming on. And I'd like to wish you all the best with the rest of the year. You've got some exciting projects lined up and I'll definitely catch up with the podcast as well. I need to listen to a few more, especially some of the ones that you mentioned. So I hope you have a good year. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks for having me on. No worries.